You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Do you know what communism is? Some people use terms today in sort of public exchange of ideas, throwing out terms like fascism, socialism, communism, capitalism, and they don't know really what they mean. They just know that these are sound bites to be associated with or to be repelled from. Communism is a political and economic ideology that presents itself in opposition to and better than democracy and capitalism. It advocates for a a classless system in which the means of production are owned communally and private property is non-existent or at least severely limited. Each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. In its modern form, communism grew out of the socialist movement in 19th century Europe. As the Industrial Revolution advanced, socialist critics blamed capitalism for the misery of the new working class, feeling like the factory workers who labored, often under hazardous conditions, were being dismissed, and others were benefiting on the backs of that employment labor force. Foremost among these critics were people like Karl Marx. In 1848, Karl Marx and his associate Engels offered a new definition of communism and popularized the term in their famous pamphlet, The Communist Manifesto. Countries like Hungary and Lithuania, Ukraine, Bulgaria, Poland, and now known as Russia were communist. They were ruled by communist parties that have often led to totalitarianism, political repression, restrictions of human rights, poor economic performance, and cultural and artistic censorship. You don't have to look at textbook to understand this. You could simply visit countries, if you wanted to, like a China or a North Korea and see what it's like to live in communism. Sadly, one of the darkest hours in history is what happened under many communist regimes around the world in the 20th century, namely the arrest, imprisonment, and murder of many of each communist country's citizens. For example, by conservative estimates, 62 plus million people died in Russia due to communism. I want to again say that number to you by way of comparison of the atrocity of World War II and particularly what happened with the murder of the Jewish people by the Nazi regime of six million plus people with this atrocity in those prison camps. But in Russia, 62 plus million people by conservative estimates killed. In China, 35 plus million people have died because of communist rule. Yet, 
after the fall of communism in many countries and the introduction of democracy, you know, elected leaders, where the citizens could decide who could govern them, economic freedom to start businesses that they could privately own, and the opportunity to own private property, even with all these things being introduced, there was countless people who wanted to return to communism. That's right. Former communist citizens being freed from communism, even with all of those dire circumstances, wanting yet still to return to communism. The question is why? Well, it's people that want to do this because of the security that they felt communism provided for them economically. And they love that security more than freedom, more than what the freedom of democracy offered them. They wanted predictability, not uncertainty. This is hard to imagine to many sensible minds. How could something so economically damaging and personally destructive to be desired to be returned to? Take, for example, the Korean War, a war fought really based on communist ideologies of North Korea versus South Korea, with North Korea being backed by Soviet Union and by China, and South Korea being backed by the United States and its allies. The significance of what took place there from 1950 to 1953. The Korean War was among the most destructive conflicts of the modern era with approximately three million war fatalities, a larger proportion of civilian death toll than World War II or Vietnam War. It incurred essentially the destruction of virtually all Korea's major cities. North Korea was one of the most heavily bombed countries in history. One and a half million North Koreans were estimated to have fled North Korea over the course of the war. And people want to go back to communism. Who'd want to go back to that? Does that seem crazy to you? If not insulting to the people who gave their lives to free people from that kind of reign and rule. But this insanity can sadly be seen not just in the world at large and in countries around the world throughout history. This insanity is actually seen equally crazily true in the church of Jesus Christ. And in the text we're going to see this morning in Galatians chapter 4, we see this insanity of people who go from being free to wanting to be back in slavery again. If you've not done so, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4 as we see this text together. The book of Galatians, as we have seen in the previous weeks and end of chapter 3 into chapter 4, these people have been freed from the tyranny of sin, the misery of trying to save themselves from their good works, they have been told that they don't want to do that anymore, and yet, once again, they keep returning to doing so. Why? Because they would rather look to what they can do to provide assurance than look to what another has already done to provide them that assurance. 
They would rather trust in self-salvation than the salvation from another. Is this insanity or the height of human pride? Perhaps both. Just like some people of former communism would be tempted to return to communism under the illusion of security, so people today who have been taught the gospel are tempted to works righteousness out of the illusion that security by their actions versus freedom because of another actions will save them. That's exactly what we're going to see today in Galatians chapter 4. So if you would follow along in your Bibles as I read to you verses 8 through 20. Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The title of today's message, as you'll see, is The Pleasure and the Pain of Pastoral Ministry. Really, if I could summarize this text that we're going to be in, probably for a couple of weeks, to be honest, I would say it like this. Christians are tempted to leave their sonship and go back to their slavery to the confusion and pain of their pastors. That's a summary of what you see in verses 8 through 20. Christians are tempted to leave their sonship and go back to the slavery to the confusion and pain of their pastors. Now, let me just tell you what I decided to do with this text this morning and into next week. We're basically going to make two laps around the track of the text. We're going to go through it textually looking at it in its sections of verses, 
And then we're going to go through it topically because there's, there's just so much there that I would feel as if I somehow try to cram all of this into a single sermon, as is often the case, but particularly would be the case in a text like this, so much would be left on the editing floor. And I just don't want that to happen because there's so much significance here. I want you to see both for yourself personally and for us collectively as a congregation, as a local church. And honestly, as an insider conversation to a conversation I want to have with Ronald, that I want to have with Chris, as we think as pastors about pastoring you and anybody else who aspires to be a pastor, to think biblically and soberly and yet trustingly of the Lord and what He is doing with Christians like you, with or without our efforts. So there's a, a lot for us here that we're going to go through. But to learn it textually, let me just tell you kind of two parts we're going to be. Verses 8 to 11, we want to see when good disciples go bad. When do good disciples go bad? Because we think we're seeing it in the text. But then secondly, we want to see in verses 12 through 20, when do good pastors get bummed? When do good pastors get bummed? So when do good disciples go bad? And then when do good pastors get bummed? Let's look at the first part here, when good disciples go bad. Let's go back to the text, a huge section we read, but let's focus our time for a portion of time in verses 8 through 11, starting first with this verses 8 and 9. I want you to see right away the compare and contrast, recognizing that most of you in the room this morning have not even looked at this text, maybe ever, or maybe for the first time in a long time. Let me draw your attention to some things visibly you can see in your Bibles. Just see it for yourself. Look at how verse 8 begins. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but I realize there's enough similarity between all our translations that we should probably have the same type of language. Verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God. Verse 9, but now, that you have come to know God. Verses 8 and 9 is this contrast, something we'll get into in more distinction next week when we talk about some of the theological topics of what's going on in the text here. But I want you to see just textually, Paul is giving really a biography, biography of the Galatians. It was once, but is now. And this is consistent. He even speaks like this in Ephesians chapter 2. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Later on in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, but now, what God has done. Well, we see this here in the text in Galatians chapter 4. Formerly, when you did not know God. But verse 9, by way of encouragement, but now that you have come to know God. And then he kind of gets into this issue that we want to see has been introduced, but then further explained. Look at what it says in verse 8. You were, past tense, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then he picks up on this theme in verse 9 again, the second part. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Now, let me just remind you, for those of you who were with us last week, go back to chapter 4, verse 3. He talks about this compare and contrast. Verse 3, he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
This is significant. In verse 9, he repeats this phrase, elementary principles of the world, but now he adds some negative adjectives, some modifiers, these terms weak and worthless. Now, in a moment of pastoral humility, to just acknowledge only God's Word is inspired, not pastors, I would like to amend something I said last week to you. Last week, as we're looking particularly at verse 3, in my study from that week, I was like, I really believe, though there's different explanations, I believe the elementary principles of the world is kind of like the, the basics of the law, and Judaizers going back to that. As I've continued to study this phrase, it comes back around the text again, even this week before us, I've really come to, I think, understand with better clarity what actually the phrase doesn't mean, which is what I said last week, what I think it does mean, which is what I'm going to say this week. So if you'll track with me in a spirit of graciousness here. The phrase elementary principles of the world is this term, elementary principles, and how that phrase would have been used in Greek mind. Again, remember, this is a Greek society, predominantly non-Christian background, some Jewish background, but predominantly non-Christian background. And so this phrase in ancient Greek referred to the elementary principles of the world. So think about like fire, air, water, earth, the elementary principles of the world. That phrase would be used to describe those elements and the belief often in Greek culture that there were gods behind those things that were responsible for them. Some of you maybe have grown up reading, or at least in school, forced to read against your desired wishes, Greek mythology. Or perhaps you've seen movies where you've seen characters be depicted with fantasy descriptions, the god of Zeus, the, the god of Thor, the, the god of Aphrodite. And this Greek mythology is really attributing different deities to different elements of the world. Well, that belief system was in place at that time in Greek pagan culture. The belief was that there were spiritual forces or gods that laid behind these elementary elements of the world. So, for example, farmers would sacrifice to a weather god to have good crops. Sailors would sacrifice and pray to a god who was responsible for the sea. Think the water. Soldiers would offer sacrifices and pray to the God of military success. Lovers of relationships and people to the God of romance, like Aphrodite. Paul speaks here as if these personal beings have become enslaved to them. Let's go back to the text. Look at what he says. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then he goes on and says in verse 9, you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. This terminology that Paul uses is important to kind of unpack for you because as you keep reading the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, as you keep reading it, you'll just continue to see that God is doing different things in how he teaches the people. For example, in 1 Corinthians, there's a whole debate about meat, sacrificed to idols, and whether or not Christians who don't believe in those idols should eat that meat. Am I somehow participating in worship of those gods by eating the meat from that religious worship system? 
That's the debate that they're having. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is not saying that these pagan gods really existed as if there was Zeus or Thor or Aphrodite, but he does say in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20 that the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. What's he saying here? He's talking about that there are spiritual realities behind a false system of religious worship. So though there are no real gods like they're describing, there are demonic forces involved in those false belief systems that they're getting ensnared, they're getting trapped in. Now why is Paul saying this? Paul's saying that though those gods do not exist, people can become enslaved by those forces when people desire to worship anything other than Jesus Christ. Now, probably for most of you, are like, okay, that's culturally, historically interesting, but I think we're good, Eric. I mean, I just, I can assure you, I have not in any way been tempted this week to, like, pray to Zeus or to, like, watch a movie Gladiator and see, like, his small gods and have, like, little wooden carved statues in my house. Some people here might. Don't do that. Most of you feel like, no, I think I'm good. Okay, but stay with me here for a second. Let's loiter here a little bit longer if we can to see what Paul's getting at, the principle behind it. Whenever we put our greatest hope, wherever we put our greatest hope, we will become enslaved to that hope if it's not in Christ. So let me ask you a question this morning. And what is your greatest hope? Money? Sex? Pleasure? Success? Beauty? Health? When we defy the things of this world, excuse me, when we deify the things of this world, we become enslaved to them and by default, serve them spiritually. They become our functional gods no matter what we tell the people we believe. Saying it differently, I can find out what you worship if I'm with you long enough to see what you value and place your greatest hope in. Tracing your joy, tracing your contentment, tracing your hope. These desires become our gods and we become religiously devoted to them. Now here is where the text gets shocking. You would think that Paul is basically saying, don't go back to those false gods. But I want you to see what he says next in verse 10. Because that's what gets kind of crazy for us. At the end of verse nine he says, whose slaves you want to be once more, question mark. And he says this, you observe Days and months and seasons and years. What? What's happening here? This doesn't look like they went back to what they did before. Yes and no. Here's the problem. They traded one false system of worship for another one. They went from their Gentile roots, remember the context of the book of Galatians, to listening to the false teachers of the Judaizers, 
And it became, in their attempt by effort and by interest, good, good Jewish practicing law-abiding citizens. Verse 10 is describing these Gentile people who are now putting their hope in observing all of the Jewish calendar sacrifices. He is saying in summary fashion, you are going back to something that is fundamentally flawed, but it looks externally different because it looks so cleaned up and honestly commendably religious. This is profound because what he's describing here with this reference to days and months and seasons and years is that they are observing these special times thinking that they would gain merit before God. But God had already made it clear that works could not be added to faith as a grounds for either their justification, becoming a Christian, or their sanctification, growing as a Christian. Some of you know personally what it's like because of your history to deal with drug addiction. Some of you have a history of drug abuse. Others of you have friends or family that not historically in the past, but presently today, struggle with drug abuse. Drug abuse is a real problem for a lot of people, a chronic problem which millions of dollars have been thrown at to try to address it. Drug use is scary, not only because of what it does to a person initially, but what it does to them eventually is it just destroys their life and it drags everybody in their family's sphere and friendship into the black hole of that decision. There's a movie that came out in 2018 titled The Beautiful Boy. It tries to capture this reality based on the best-selling pair of memoirs from father and son David and Nick Sheriff. It chronicles the heartbreaking and inspiring experience of survival, relapse, and recovery in a family coping with drug addiction over many, many years. One of the things that's sad about drug addiction is how it often introduces another drug in a long series of addictions. So, for example, did you know that cocaine, which is rated by many in sort of pharmaceutical language as the most addictive drug, and it is so because of what it does to the body, how it's a stimulant creating an intense high, flooding the brain with dopamine, involving in pleasure, in pleasure rather, it begins to significantly short-live that effect and you have to have more cocaine. But did you know that oftentimes cocaine users eventually become methamphetamine users. They switch over from cocaine to meth. And the reason they do this is because meth is a lot more accessible. It's just available. And it's a lot more costly, excuse me, not as costly as cocaine is. And so often methamphetamine users previously used to be some other drug user, cocaine or otherwise, heroin or et cetera. Methamphetamine is equally as damaging. It kills them physically, kills them in their brain, all the while people are standing by pleading with them to stop. 
Paul in Galatians 4 is watching the Galatians spiritually relapse. They're going from one drug to another with the same damaging effects on their life and relationships. And the Judaizers have come behind Paul since he was first there. And like a drug pusher, they're pushing the spiritual peddling of false heresy that they know the way, that they can show them the better way and introduce them to God's way, twisting the scriptures, quoting it out of context to support themselves in their opinion of what they think of themselves. And the Galatians are tempted to go there. And this is why he says in verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I think what's significant is two parts to this. Part one is coming to Christ celebratory, commendable, rejoicing and praising God for. But also, to be cautious to say, once you come to Christ, that you'll never be tempted to be drawn away, back away from Christ. And even those who seemingly represent what is truth actually just represent lies. And they twist the truth to create lies not for your good, but for theirs. And you get drawn back into something that's different than what you once came from, and so you mistakenly think, oh, it's okay now. But friends, look, can we just go back to the text of Galatians 4? When he speaks in verse 10 about observing days and months and seasons and years, this also takes to the second thing I want you to be sure to understand. Trying to earn your salvation through biblical morality and religion, which is what they're doing, is just as much enslavement to idols as outright paganism and all of its immoral practices. In the end, the religious person is just as lost and enslaved as the irreligious person. Why? Because both are trying to be their own Savior and Lord, but in different ways. The religious person is trying to do it through achievement of morality, and that morality becomes their God by which they justify themselves and denounce all others. Here's what's so damaging and so concerning by simile of the religious, is whereas the irreligious is usually more quickly to acknowledge they're far from God, the religious deceives themselves based on their morality and declares that they're close to God when they're equally just as far. These actions have become idols, false saviors, in which we put our hope in something other than in Christ. Martin Luther said this in the 1500s, quote, all those who do not in all their works Trust in God's favor, grace, and goodwill, but rather seek His favor in other things or in themselves. 
do not keep the first commandment and practice real idolatry. Even if they were to do the works of all the other commandments, if we doubt and or do not believe that God is gracious and pleased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please Him through our works, then all our compliance with the law is pure deception. Outwardly honoring God, but inwardly setting up self as a false Savior. Why is this important? Because it might be understandable if you've been here for any allotment of time that you maybe think the gospel is for those who are far off in morality, immorality. Like people that are like hungover sitting here based on what they did last night. People who are still sleeping with their boyfriends and girlfriends who probably should stop doing that. People who are still fighting against drug addiction. So the gospel is for those people. And to that I would say, it is. But the mistake to make would be to think because I'm not like them. I speak well. I act well. I dress well. I behave well. That by my works, you can see how well I am. That that becomes a substitute savior if your hope for God's acceptance of you is based on that kind of morality-driven thinking. And you know who to illustrate this with? Luke 15. Jesus is having a conversation about what? The famous story of the prodigal son. By show of hands, how many of you have heard of the story of the prodigal son? Okay, a lot of you. Not all of you, a lot of you. For those of you who know the story of the prodigal son, you think, understandably, wow, God can love somebody like that and he can love me. True. True. But do you know who he's teaching that story to? You know who Jesus is talking to when he explains that? You can see in the text, he's talking to Pharisees. And the other character in the parable of the prodigal son that he introduces and explains is the elder brother who was mad at the father because the father welcomes the son and throws a feast for him and the elder brother is saying, listen, dad, I did everything right. I obeyed you. I did everything right I was supposed to do. Why are you not celebrating me? And, and the, the son and the, and, the, and the story with the father is realizing the reality that one actually who you thought was lost was found and one who you thought was found in the end turns out to be lost. As he turns the story and explains to the Pharisees that they are that elder brother. Do we have any elder brothers here this morning? Do we have anybody here that thinks God is pleased with you because of what you've not done? Where you've not been? Because of what you've not taken? Because of what you've not said? 
Friends, do not make that mistake. John Stott says, how can a bondage to the law be called a bondage to evil spirits? In other words, false gods. What Paul means is that the devil took this good thing, the law, and twisted it to his own evil purposes in order to enslave men and women. Pastor Tim Keller, who just went to be with the Lord on Friday, dying after a three-year fight against pancreatic cancer, infamous for his writing and teaching, helping provide clarity on this, said the following, if anything, the idolatry or slavery of religion is more dangerous than the idolatry or slavery of irreligion. Why? The irreligious person knows he is away from God, but the religious person does not. Now we see why Paul was so afraid for the Galatians. The new slavery to non-gods would be worse than the old. They would not know that they were away from the Father. Friends, God wants to be clear to all people in all places that we all have to come before Christ and say, I only have hope in Christ. But because of Christ and Christ alone, I have hope. That as a source of comfort. I told you, we might be in it for a week or two, at this rate maybe three, You'll see, as Paul transitions in verse 11 to verse 12, he moves honestly into verses 12 through 20 from appealing to them historically and theologically to appealing to them relationally. He takes their head in his hands metaphorically and he says, listen, people, you know me. I have been there with you. Look at me. You have heard me, now see me. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.